This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Get ready to dial into the exciting world of call centers with First Contact, stories of the call center podcast. Join us as we share stories from industry leaders, explore the latest trends and technologies, and tackle the challenges and triumphs of the contact center landscape. Fasten your seatbelt for a high-energy journey brought to you by Nobel Biz, the one-stop shop for all your call center needs, both in software and service. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Super excited about today's episode. We got a good friend today, also a client who's joined us. We have Eric Sims. Now, for those of you who don't know Eric, um, he has been spending a lot of his history, a lot of his time being an expert in the contact center space. Now, he's also the co-founder and CEO of Leading Edge Connections, the number one fully remote outsourced contact center. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. But he's also the host of Preventing Brand Slaughter. Now, I love that name, and we're going to have to talk about that later as well. It's a weekly podcast that helps businesses gain insights and information on how to protect their brand from self-inflicted sabotage. And guess what? I'm sure no one has ever done that before. So, Eric, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kristen. It's exciting to be here. Great to see you again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And now look, we always start this show the same way. We really want to know your story. You know, we always talk about how not everybody wakes up and goes, hey, when I grew up, I'm going to work in the call center space. Now, we have actually run to some people that have that as their background, but we want to know, how did you get here, right? You got a background, you got a history. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I, you know, I, at an early age, uh, was fascinated with call centers and wanted to grow up and be a call center employee and call center leader. No, <laughs> I, uh, I got, all right, we, we got, we got to wrap up yeah. the show. We're done. <laughs> I, I like to be in that less than 1% club. So if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I, I'm, I'm much like anybody else. Like I had done a number of different things in my career by the time I found my way into a call center. I, I've worked in one for 20 minutes when I was like 15 years old or something like that with a, some buddies of mine, because we found a summer job and I didn't last very long, but my, I'd never had, I hadn't been really any real exposure to it. So like at 34, I think it was something like that, 32, um, I found my way into a contact center. I'd moved to Tampa, um, didn't have any plans when I moved out here. I'd sold my business and was my, well, my plan was to, you know, be Jimmy Buffett and jet skis on the beach or whatever. But, um, I found out very quickly that that probably wasn't a, a very good lifestyle, you know, to, to take forward for me. Um, so I had a friend that worked in a contact center and he, you know, told me about it and I was like, well, you know, I've done sales and I've done management and stuff like that. So, you know, I try it out. And so I started working there and, and just kind of fell in love with, uh, you know, a lot of different aspects of the business, a little bit of the chaos I enjoyed. Uh, but I found my way into a brick and mortar center as a really at 34 is almost an entry level employee. I started at the bottom. I was just on the phones. Um, so that was a big change for me too, because I'd gone from running companies and running businesses and, and being an entrepreneur um, to starting all over again as, a, as an entry empl- employee, because I'd never done any of that stuff. So uh, it, goes, it goes about, you know, what is that, 18 years ago or something like that, unfortunately. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that journey, just like everybody else, right? There was an opportunity that came up, you capitalized on it, you invested, you built yourself up from, like, would you say, the entry-level position into where you are today, now being the CEO and uh, running a business. So, you know, with that, though, 
What's interesting about uh, Leading Edge Connections is that it's fully remote, right? And yep. when you take that into account, um, why fully remote? You know, why not a brick and mortar like most or a hybrid like many are today? Yeah, I think, so I have a partner in the company. His name's John Giuliano. John and I met um, at a, a brick and mortar center that we were working for here in the U.S. He was running this, the Buffalo location. Um, I was in Tampa, but helping oversee that location as well and get them started up because they were all, everybody was new, right? It was a brand location. So we formed a friendship. Um, and then over the years, you know, continuing to work in that brick and mortar space, we just started to identify some trends um, with talent and techniques and technologies that were reoccurring challenges. And for me, it was continuing to go into those Groundhog's Day meetings that they that we continue to have like annually and quarterly around, well, what are we going to do about attrition? How do we find better people? How do we work with our margins better? Um, you know, how do we ramp faster? All, all the kind of things that we actually are supposed to do as a contact center were the core challenges for the business. Um, and so for me, it was like, hey, listen, I believe after some study that this is the way to go. Um, you know, we looked at some statistics. We weren't the first ones to ever go remote. You know, Live Ops had done it and some other people, Rise had a formation of this, Working Solutions had a formation of this. Um, so we were able to come in after a few people had done this and say, okay, what worked, what didn't work, right? Or what could we make work better? But the big piece of the puzzle was like, I'm just tired of trying to solve the same problems with the same brains and the same financial model that created the problem. Um, and so for us, it was like, hey, listen, if we remove the real estate, that was the first big thing for me. So looking at a PL, I said, listen, what's our largest cost outside of payroll, right? But payroll's budgeted in the contact center as part of your part of your revenue cycle. You can't, you know, get rid of all your payroll. It doesn't make sense. Um, that was the was the building cost, you know, and we said, okay, so what's our biggest hurdle with hiring? Well, um, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I, I took a I took a piece of notebook paper and I drew a circle on it and I said, okay, if we have a building in the middle of this circle, we have about a five to 10 mile radius for us to hire people. Are there more good people in a 10 mile radius of this building or are there more good people in the continental United States and Canada? Um, and I didn't have to Google it. I didn't have to look it up. I didn't have to get an Excel spreadsheet or my data team to figure that out. It was a pretty obvious answer. So for us, when you say, okay, now we've eliminated our, our highest hard cost and we've opened the door to actually go out and recruit the talent actually needed and wanted uh, for this type of business, uh, it frees us up. Are there, are there challenges? Yeah, but there are going to be new challenges to solve, not trying to you know, solve the same old challenges that no one's been able to solve for the last 30 years when, uh, you know, since whatever, 92 or whatever model everybody's stuck in right now. So um, that was a big piece for us. That was, that was our why. We wanted to open the door to be very flexible and scalable. Um, the other piece with that was looking at the workforce. And I'm going on rambling a little bit, but um, looking, at, looking at the millennial workforce and the Gen Z workforce, primarily at that point in time, it was a millennial workforce, uh, and saying, okay, we've already got a good amount of these people in the workspace. And it's, it's, they're the, they, they are mathematically one of the largest batches in history. Um, we're going to continue to see that percentage go up. The current model is not conducive for that type of employee at a high percentage scale. When you looked at the, what they want, what they need, how they operate, how they learn. So we were like, we need to do something different. 
And we need to do it in a way that's attractive to that generation and the generation after them, from training to recruiting to management to technology to everything. And so those those are kind of the big pieces. And always we always call it the three T's. It goes back to talent, techniques, and technologies for us. You know, there's so much to unpack there. And it's great to hear how you said, hey, I saw a problem with how my business was running. I am going to do something disruptive because it's not a minor change to go from full brick and mortar to full, right. Brick, right? There wasn't like even a dipping of the toe. And what's interesting is it doesn't sound, and maybe I'm wrong here, that the pandemic drove that, right? It was just a business decision where you said, hey, I'm now going to move from brick and mortar to yeah. remote as a business model. So with that said, there's a lot of positives that you said, right? There's a larger pool of people you can get. Obviously, there's got to be the positives of people working remote. There's going to be people that want that type of job. You also have, obviously, your cost models. You talked about a lot of good things, but what were the challenges? Like, do you have a couple things of when you've made that decision? What happened with the people that didn't want to go remote? Or was everyone yeah. like, yeah, let's go remote. Anybody suffer going remote, going, hey, yeah. I don't know how to stay engaged. Can you give me some insight into that journey? Yeah. So we were, so we, we went fully remote in 2018 when we started the company. So we were pre-COVID. Um, so there wasn't that, we didn't see that coming. I, mean, I have that up probably retired, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, it did help validate the model. It kind of forced that validation for some people overnight for us. It did, it, in that sense, it helped, and we were able to help a lot of people during that time, which was even more important. Um, the challenges were um, at the beginning, I'll go kind of go to the beginning, right? The beginning, I think the challenges were we underestimated the difference between a brick and mortar center and a um, a virtual model from a standpoint of engagement with employees and management oversight and leadership. And what I mean by that is the DNA needed for that. Primarily, we had some decent processes in place, I think. Um, and some of that's ev you know evolving over time as well as we learn more and look at the data. But the big chunk was what we found out like high level was that people who were really good in the center and a brick and mortar center in person we're not necessarily good in a virtual model. The, the virtual model required a far more analytical um, it, uh, type of manager. They still had to have that personality, but they had to figure out a different, a little bit a different way to do it. They couldn't run down the aisle and show and throw hacky sacks and bubble gum at people and slap people on the back of the head. They weren't spending six hours a day chasing people in the back parking lot for smoke breaks, right? Um, so there was, <laughs> you know, it was it was different, you know, and so. Um, what we found was we had to, we had to kind of recreate that DNA that we looked for in leadership, um, and, and move that a little further over on the analytical side, um, so that they, they understood the business a little bit further, um, and were more numbers and data driven, um, on their decision-making and they were very methodical, uh, and organized, right. Type of person. So when you look at kind of like a predictive index profiling type scenario, we went from something that was far broader and more loose and charismatic to something that was a little more analytical. They weren't like data nerds, we call it, like we're just behind the scenes, not able to talk to people. I mean, those guys are needed too, and, and girls and people, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, but they, had to, they had to move that needle over a little bit further from where we had originally anticipated. That was a big one. From a, from a client standpoint, I was really concerned from a client acquisition standpoint about... Um, how are we going to close business? Like, because the old way of doing it was they came and visited your site 
you flew out to see them. There was a lot of in-person dog and pony type of stuff, right? And although most of us in the industry, if we're real honest, would say we, we all know what that is. It's a dog and pony show, right? You bring them in the building, you pony them around and, and show them all the people that you've handpicked for them to see that day and make sure that anybody you don't want them to see is off. Um, you know, all those kind of secrets that we didn't have to do anymore. Um, but at the same time, it was like, well, how do we see your center? And so um, it, it was uh, a concern. The travel piece, I was very shocked early on that people didn't ask to come see us more or to meet us in person more. They, they were far more comfortable. And that may have had to do with, after a year or two, with COVID piece, people got far more comfortable with remote. Early on, I was just shocked, you know. But I think, I think the SaaS world and the CCAS world, because of that type of selling has gotten so um, more popular, people are gradually understanding, like, I don't have to have Christian, you know, next door to me for me to feel comfortable in, in purchasing his service and product. I can look at his reviews online. I can talk to some references. I can do my own investigation on, on their services and then feel good about the decision I make, right? So I think that helped a lot, the advent of that kind of big boom with SaaS. Um, but those were kind of some of the, the things that scared me at first, you know, was just how are we going to handle those two things? And so um, we've been able to navigate those things and they haven't been as big of a demand as what we thought. Running a contact center these days takes a great deal of courage and fortitude. Nobel Biz would like to salute the contact center community for not giving up and working hard to drive their businesses down the road to success. As the promise keepers of the industry, our goal was to provide one of the most versatile and cost-efficient omni-channel solutions on the market. Nobel Biz Omni Plus is a cloud contact center software that gives instant access to a full range selection of channels from voice calls, two-way SMS, email, WhatsApp, Twitter, Telegram, among others. Our solution offers complete control over the externalities by switching from an on-premise technology to a cloud-based solution in just a matter of hours. Get integrated compliance support, advanced reporting, seamless agent and supervisor dashboards, and many more performance-enhancing capabilities, all in just one product. Nobel Biz Omni Plus, the future-proof solution for scaling contact center operations. Learn more about Nobel Biz Omni Plus at www.nobelbiz.com. Yeah, it's interesting how you talk about that that fear of how that next step in running your business could also become this big impediment where you're like, I don't know what I don't know, right? Are the customers going to not be okay coming into the office or yep. walk through the dog and pony, as you said, and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of times that's also what keeps us from making decisions, right? Is the fear. We just go like, oh, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how it's going to act my business. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, and so you look at it and say, well, the, the current model doesn't work. We got to do yeah. something different. And so you went ahead and did that. And so it's interesting to talk about the aspect of engagement, right? Because you said there, there's managers that had to be more analytical. Um, when it comes to the concept of engagement, right? Is there anything special or unique or things that you carried on from prior um, business models and brick and mortar externally yeah. to this remote world where you can get that engagement really going when, like you said, you can't throw the gum at people or walk by yeah. them or do anything? I, it's so... And I want to take a step back. I don't want to sound like there's nothing good about a brick and mortar center. There's lots of things that do work. We just felt like there was a better 
version. So what we did was we looked and said, okay, John and I built the business this way. We, we, we literally took a whiteboard before we launched LAC and said, hey, listen, we were having one of those sessions you do with some of your associates and friends where you're just complaining about stuff. And both of us stopped and we're like, well, this isn't a healthy conversation. It's not really getting us anywhere. Um, so we said, hey, let's, let's do this. We've been in the industry almost 20 years each. So if it was that bad, we would have left already if we hated it that much. So there's got to be a lot of stuff we like about it. So what we did was we took a whiteboard, divided it on two sides. So we're going to write down all the stuff that we about the contact center business that we like. Uh, we started with what we don't like, but what we don't like uh, <laughs> on one side. And then we're going to go with the stuff we do like and be fair, right, on the other side. And when we did that, what we found was there's a lot of good things going on within the brick and mortar center, within the industry. And we want to keep doing those things, right? And then the stuff that we didn't enjoy and didn't like, we either, so we said, here's two things. We have, we have two options with these things. Either we're not going to do them at all, or we're not going to do them the same way. We're going to figure out a different way to do them, right? And so a lot of that we came in with like, hey, listen, like prizes, incentives, things like that. They're, they're important. We've all looked at those. They're, they're like candy and literally to a child, they give you a temporary spike. They don't really create culture. Um, so we got to have a big fo a focus on culture. But to go back to your question, some of the stuff we found was like, hey, listen, like people enjoy having break rooms and being able to meet people and talk to people. They love to be able to share a meal together. They love to be able to be to win uh, food or gifts or things like that. Right. Like those are still great things. So how do we recreate those in the virtual environment? So um, we adopted a, an internal platform that's, it's, it's a Facebook product, but we use it. Um, it's, it's, it's a business product of theirs that creates a social and communication element for our teams that we can have breakout rooms in and movie rooms and, and lunch rooms and things like that for them to go into if they want to, to talk to each other. Um, and then on top of that, we've got stuff like Zoom and stuff like this, where you can get on multiple people and have meetings or happy hours or whatever it may be. And then we did stuff like DoorDash and Uber Eats and stuff. So, hey, if you got, if you want food or you wanted something to eat, we just wanted to surprise somebody. Ding dong. Hey, there's your lunches at the door. And then they get on and eat with their friends. We'd set up a time for them to go do stuff like that. So it was still managed with a lot of recognition, um, a, a good amount of incentives. Uh, I think we put a higher emphasis on training and um, time investment and, and time ease with the agents. Like how do we create more frictionless stuff for them there for them to feel empowered in their job? So those are some other things. But anyway, that's some of the stuff we did. We just took what was, work, what was working in that center and said, how do we do that in a virtual environment? And those are the stuff to me, that's the stuff that's fun, right? Like I enjoy trying to solve new problems. I don't enjoy banging my head against the wall, trying to like figure out the same thing we've been trying to figure out forever, all knowing what the answer is already. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, what's great about that is a lot of times we just try stuff and that's important, right? To get new ideas flowing and get the juices going, but you also stopped for a minute and you were intentional about what you were trying to achieve and you were looking at the outcome, the end result, and then you worked your way back, right? You took the thing yep. and say, oh, we're just going to wipe the whiteboard clean and start from scratch. You say, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's some stuff here that the outcome that drives engagement, drives performance, drives people believing in what they do for work, creating an environment for them to want to work there. Um, you just may have had to find a different way to get there, but that was yeah. part of the engagement model, which is great. And so with that, you know, you were doing a lot of positive things. I want to kind of skip over for a minute now to preventing brand slaughter, right? Okay. Um, it's an awesome name. With that said, though, you know, what inspired you to even start that in the first place? And there's got to be some 
topics that were just awesome at the beginning or that you've started going over, or maybe ones you're excited about talking about next. Give us some insight into that. Yeah, so I I have to give 100% credit to John. John came up with the and coined the word brand slaughter. And we were in a conversation and he said it, I, you know, and, and I was like, oh, I was kind of like everybody else. I was like, dude, that's a great word. <laughs> it's such a great picture, you know, and it gets people attention. And then we started talking through like what it is really kind of forming up, like, what does it really mean? And we had some funny stuff that we threw in, but we were like, all right, you know, it really is, it's, it's involved around, uh, cause it came out the concept of like manslaughter, right? Like, you know, unintentionally, um, you know, or intentionally, you know, killing something, right? Like, and so we're like, these are, these are moves that people are making that are killing their own brand. They're sabotaging their own brand. And we were watching this happen. Don't we all, we've been guilty of brand slaughter. Everybody has, right? We've all made bad decisions, but um, we had the good fortune early on because we were small and we were taking on a lot of um, earlier cycle business at the time to watch other companies and other industries struggle. And help some of them that would let us and some of them, you know, that we couldn't help. But what we saw was like, hey, there's a good amount of stuff out there that's just self-inflicted pain, like that's just being created. And so, and, and then we looked and said, well, we see it here. Let's look at some of these other businesses. And, you know, John and I've gotten where we kind of just evaluate stuff as we travel or as we go stuff. And, and it's kind of become our hobby, right? And, and, and looking at stuff and saying like, you know, what are the, what's the communication? What's the technology? What's the techniques? What's the talent look like? And what are they doing that either enhances the brand? And, you, and we've all had those experiences where we just walk out of a place and you're like, wow, I would like take that employee with me anywhere <laughs> yeah. they go. Even like we, we had dinner when everybody was here last time down at this place called the gin joint, right? Great place, cool place. But the guy that served us was so phenomenal, right? Like we were like, he was so on point, so good with the company, so good with what he did that we were like, dude, I would go back there and take anybody I know and drag them back in that place just to eat with that guy. Not even that, the food was good too, right? But just to eat with that guy. So to us, like that guy, that that person's building a brand for that company and preventing brand slaughter from happening. We've all had those experiences where you get on the phone with somebody or call somebody and right now the airlines are getting beat up like crazy for this, right? Like you can't get through to people and they're making cuts and adjustments that, um, I understand there's financial models in place, right? But they're 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 jeopardizing brand longevity and jeopardizing brand um, efficiency and really killing their customer lifetime value and a lot of other stuff based on things. So we we're like, hey, how do we start exposing some of this stuff in a positive way? It's not about pointing the finger at X Y Z and making fun of them and saying they're a terrible company because we've all made mistakes. But we wanted to bring to light two different points, right? Here's what one group is doing that's phenomenal. Let's focus on that. And if anybody learns anything from it, you could take this and duplicate it in your company or call these people, you know, if it would be if they're on the podcast, get in touch with them, right? Um, if they're not doing something that's great or if there's something out there that someone's already tried and it's failed miserably, let's expose that too so other brands and other people don't have to go through the same pain. I mean, it's a beautiful part of the world we live in today where we have so much information and access is, hey, we can actually talk to millions of hundreds of thousands of people can log in if they want to and just like they would for your show here and and learn something right and they then they don't have to feel the same pain that i went through or you went through with maybe mistakes or things that we had to learn they can cut those things down and and, and move forward faster so that was a big piece of it you know I, I love what you said that you're able to learn from other people's mistakes i mean that's you know an old saying i'm mean, obviously just have my version of how I remember it, but you know, um, smart people learn from their mistakes. Wise people learn from other people's mistakes. And, you know, even though the term brand slaughter just 
seems like you're going to be like, oh, you're going to hear all these stories of all these people just destroying their brand, um, even though that may or may be some pieces there. But there's really like that that concept you just said, hey, you know, airlines, a lot of them are, you know, having difficulty right now in how they communicate with their customers. Some of them have chosen to remove the human voice aspect of it. And I don't believe per se that it's good or bad that you remove or add a human voice into a conversation. I more of look at it as, is it the right place at the right time in the right way that that customer wants to be engaged, right? There's going to be times and ways where if you are that embracing of the customer, you understand them well, you know them well enough, you anticipate what they want, then you may not have to have a human voice for everything that you do with them. But if you do it well, then you may be able to say, yeah, your web chat is great or your um, website is great or your uh, online uh, education information or whatever it may be, your self-service IVR. But unfortunately, a lot of companies don't actually, like you said earlier, you know, when you were looking at the end in mind, the outcome, they they just go, oh, this is the next shiny object or here's the thing that saves costs or reduces yep. my human capital. Uh, but with that being said, what ends up happening is they end up just forcing more calls that are people that are upset. <laughs> so talk and to d- me about- And diminishing your return, right? You diminish your revenue at the same time. So it's it's not really solving the problem you're trying to solve. And so it's a, you're, you're spot on, right? One of the things that we talk to people about is, what are your customers saying? Because all of us as business leaders, and one of the things I have to remind myself of every day is that I get a day older and a day more out of touch with stuff, right? <laughs> as much as I try, right? I have to remember like, so I've, I, had, I need to make sure that I understand what the frontline employees want and, and demand and what the customer is demanding. And then I can take the budget and say, how do I make that, how do I make those two things work together most effectively? Because if I lower budget and put it all towards something that's not going to work, it's not an effective budget. It, ha- it still needs to be used in a way that builds the customer and builds your revenue and closes your back door somehow, right? So I think that's a step that a lot of people move. They get into a vacuum because money's tight and they have to make some decisions and they, and they don't take the time to investigate some of those things that may be different to their own personal opinions or may be different to the things that they've done before that have made them successful. Because there's things that we do that made us successful last year, but they may not work this year. Right. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest challenges I see is how do you continue to evolve and solve problems in a new way? Because again, we both know that things move at lightning pace in today's world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think part of that change is really, like you said, listening to your customer. And if you're not doing that and you only have what you want or what you think is cool in mind, then you may completely miss the mark, right? Where other people look back and go, oh my gosh, they completely, like you say, they slaughtered their brand, right? They did something that just didn't make sense because their customer wasn't at the forefront of that decision. So with that, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, when you look at entrepreneurs and you look at the successes they have, um, you always look back and go, gosh, could I have done that? Or what, what, what could I have done in my career to have been able to aspire to that? Or for those that say, hey, entrepreneurship's not my thing. What would you say to that group that says, hey, I'd love to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an entrepreneur. I've uh, I'm maybe scared of it or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've tried and I failed. What advice could you give them to help them be able to look and go, hey, if you want to go build and grow your own business, here's some things I learned or some things that you could probably take yeah. on your journey. So I think not everyone's built for entrepreneurship. 
Um, and that's not a bad thing. I, I think one thing that um, people need to evaluate is what is it going to take to be successful in business and in that industry? And if you're not built for that, that's okay. Go find something you're built for and ha- enjoy yourself because life's too short to try to be somebody you're not doing something you don't want to do. Um, so that's first and foremost. And some of that's discovery. So it goes back to something you said earlier too, which is there, there's, I think and agree, there's two ways to learn mentors and mistakes. And, and we all, we all at times have probably done both of those things. I find mentoring to be far less painful uh, than the mistake learning. <laughs> I was a mistake learner for 32 years straight. I, I'm very familiar with mistake learning. Um, so I, one thing I would suggest is find a mentor, find someone who's extremely, you trust, um, who's experienced or knowledgeable in those areas you're evaluating. You know, I mean, um, I wouldn't go to a, uh, a person who's never been an entrepreneur or who has not been successful in business to try to figure out what that's like. I think you need to talk to somebody who's been in the trenches, understands the difficulty of what that is, um, the other piece, and I just had this conversation with my daughter the other day because she's getting ready to graduate college and she's evaluating like, do I continue on to get my master's degree? Do I go work for somebody else? Do I start my own business? I only have the experience I have with you, dad, because she runs our PR and, and she worked in recruiting and stuff like that. Um, and I said, I think the other piece that you need to do, Peyton, and I would suggest to anybody else is take a second, kind of like we do with LEC and, and do, some, do some soul searching. Look at how you're built and the things that you enjoy and where you feel the most powerful, it doesn't mean you have to be the most experienced because at certain ages, you may not be, right? You may not have the time there. And that doesn't mean you can't go get experience or knowledge. It's just about that awareness, but really do some soul searching on what do you enjoy? How are you built? What type of environments do you thrive in and feel passionate about? When you look at the world and you look at business and you look at situations, what problems bother you the most? Like that tells you it's, it's indicative of things that you probably, you're supposed to go help solve, right? And that keeps you passionate. Because as an entrepreneur, if you're not passionate about what you're doing and you're not in love with it, um, you're not gonna, it's gonna be really hard to stick with it because it's not easy. It's, it is at times very, very difficult and you're having to learn things on the fly. But if you understand who you are, where you're from and what you're about and what you want very clearly, um, those things drive you in those down times or in those difficult times. And they're also your uh, compass when you're, when you're making decisions. Because um, as, a, as a business owner, when you, if you decide to go the entrepreneurial route, one of the things that most entrepreneurs struggle with early on is, I took on too many different types of business, or I didn't understand who my client was. Well, because you didn't really drill in and figure out who you are and what you're about, who you're trying to service, and then stay with that, right? You're going to learn and you may be able to expand. But understanding that core very early on, I think, is powerful because then it gives you insight. And again, it's all about what do I like? What do I not like? I always start with what you don't like because it's so easy to see. All of us are, it's easier for us to find the things that rub us the wrong way uh, because they bother us. So get that down. And then from that clarity, you'll begin to start seeing what you do like and what you are passionate about. You don't want to camp out over there and just turn into a, a complaint session. But it does create some clarity where then you can go figure out what those things are. Then you take that and you go to a mentor or something like that and say, help me walk, help me discuss this and bounce this off of to figure out maybe some options and ideas on what next steps may be and what I need to do. And then from there, to again, 
you can try to do it on your own or you can get financial mentors and people that you trust that way and, and business mentors and there's stuff to learn online. But those are my big suggestions for people who are early on. Don't be scared to do it. We live in a world where information is everywhere. There, it's no longer the day of um, there's a guy in a room who holds all the information and the only way for me to get it is to sign up for his school and attend his class. Um, that's a way, but we don't live in that world anyway. So don't be scared to journey out and chase your dreams because there's endless and infinite possibilities for you to be successful, but you do need to be tact tactical about them and first and foremost, understand who you are and what you want. A famous African proverb says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. At Nobel Biz, we have made it our mission to travel far and wide with our partners and clients. As a complete telecom services provider with over 20 years of experience in the industry, Nobel Biz offers the only voice carrier network designed with the sole purpose of serving call centers around the world. This contact center dedicated carrier network provides crystal clear voice traffic, up-to-date compliance tools, intelligent routing, and highly secure data protocols combined with 99.9% .9 uptime and easy setup. Our goal for 2022 is to become the ultimate partner and provider for the contact center industry by placing service quality at the top of our priority list. To top it off, at Nobel Biz, we have the most competitive cost per minute model in the industry. Need proof? Reach out to us and learn more about the Nobel Biz Voice Carrier Network at www.nobelbiz.com. Well, that's great when you look at it from the perspective of that early stage decision making, right? What's going to go into my decision? Why am I making this decision? And then that leap into not allowing fear alone to keep you from taking on that next part of your life, that next chapter in your book, right? But when you now have a business, right? And now you're trying to scale that business. You're going from just, you know, maybe a handful of people, a lot of people wearing a lot of different hats. There's eventually some structure that has to be created. I know you earlier talked about talent, techniques, and technology. Yep. Where did each of those play when you're an entrepreneur, you're starting your business, and you're starting to scale, you're starting to see where things are going to break if you don't implement the right yep. talent, the right techniques, and the right technology? Give us some insight into how you've leveraged those three key approaches. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things, right? There's the financial structure of it, right? What what are we able to do or, or, or how do we build this out? I think that the biggest piece for us is we built, we started doing this with agents first. Um, and then we realized, actually, this is extremely valuable across the board. And I, it goes back to that DNA piece. So talent is a huge piece. There, there's, I'll get into technology and some of the other stuff later, but First being, we're still in a business of people for us. It's predominantly a people business. So putting people in a winning position um, and then creating the environment that is conducive for winning were the top two things. And what I discovered and John had discovered and, and some of our other like HR people that we work with that are in the company is that when you can get a, and I'll use you kind of like match.com, like when I can get a high percentage match, <laughs> the, the likelihood of that success goes up exponentially. So what we first did was like, and we still do, is we build what we call ideal agent personas, ideal um, supervisor personas, ideal director personas, whatever that may be. Very similar like you would build an ICP, like an ideal customer persona for your marketing team. Because you're saying, who am I trying to talk to? What messages need to go to them? Where, where are they? And internally, what we're looking at is who are they? Where are they from? What experience do they have? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? 
what is their performance DNA? Um, are, are they, and we use predictive index for a lot of stuff. So like, are they hyper flexible? What do they crave? What do they like? Um, because what we found with a, a lot of the talent was, um, even though someone's done something before, doesn't mean that's for them. Um, they may have done it out of desperation or out of necessity versus out of desire. And so we try to get people right fitted into positions where they're really going to thrive based on how they're built. It may mean there's additional training needed, but that's okay because the longevity of that position goes up exponentially because we've put them in a winning position. So that's, that's one thing, you know, we, we, we've been continually working on since the beginning and evolving to try to get better at because we know the investment there yields a strong return. Our attrition is far lower than the industry standard um, all the way across the board. It's night and day. And we feel like, you know, it's not all that, but it's a good chunk of that is us investing in that piece and trying to put people in a winning spot. Um, when you look at technology, we, again, we look at it and say like, hey, we're building this, this framework out for a business. What do we need to be successful, right? And again, we felt like the remote model, we didn't, it didn't require all this on-prem stuff. It gave us the ability to be far more flexible as we grow. Uh, what we have today with you guys is not what we had take one. Um, you know, it's far superior. <laughs> and we had to evaluate that each time and say, okay, what do we need? What are our customers demanding? And what is our budget able to take on in, 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 in a size of our company that we need? Um, so we've been able to look at that and say, what's going to create that agent employee experience, right? That first. What's going to create the agent or employee experience that will drive the end customer experience that we want to take place? Because if the agents and the frontline people and the supervisors aren't having that experience, it makes it extremely difficult for them to impart that onto someone that they're talking to verbally or on chat. It's, it's not going to happen. I, I, goes that, I learned that in the brick and mortar center. I was like, we can't ask people to go impart something on someone else that they, they themselves have not had imparted on them, Right. So it, it, it has to start at the top, or if you're an inverted pyramid person, the bottom, <laughs> but it has to bleed all the way through. And so that was a big thing for us. How do we continue to do and leverage technology that enhances the employee experience so that they can then go out and, and enhance the customer experience? And then you know, the question goes, what, what technology do we need for the customer experience? Um, best practices, you know, which is another piece of that, which we call about techniques. Um, we look at that and we say, okay, and that's evolved, you know, I mean, that continues to evolve because as you learn, you change things. Uh, one of the things that we wanted in our environment was far more self-management and freedom and empowerment. Those were important to us. We knew that was going to be different because we did the research on what the change should be in the type of employee that we get. Um, and there's a lot of data behind that that we use to make that decision around work experience, life experience, education experience, the type of employee we were going to bring in versus a type of employee maybe we had before, at least in volume. And we said, okay, now we can build a self, more of a self-managed, millennial-minded environment because they don't enjoy micromanagement. Nobody really enjoys micromanagement, but they will not put themselves in that environment if it's not positive and conducive for their lifestyle. So how do we create that? And what are the best practices that need to be in place there um, to support them and the end business. So we, we do a lot of work with our clients on that too. We help them build some of their best practices. I think and you've been in this industry a long time. One of the cool things about the BPO space is we work across so many industries and businesses, right? We get to touch all this cool stuff. It brings a lot of value back to that one customer because I can, we can say, hey, listen, 
Here's what we're doing over here in the SaaS industry that's working right here. Here's what we're doing on outbound that's working over here. Here's what we're doing on on uh, tickets, you know, for a technology company and for a financial. We bundle all that up and we say, here's all this great proven information that we can leverage to help build a better SOP for your business or a better experience for your business. So we, we try to do a really good job of documenting all the wins and losses so that we can leverage those for customers as well. Well, what's great is that you, you don't look at every customer strictly as like they're this unique um, one-off, right? Even though there are special unique things that are tailored towards helping them be successful, there's still all these learnings that you have from all the other different verticals, different approaches, different places. And you're layering in again with intention, the kind of talent that's going to be there long enough so that your churn isn't constant all the time, like really bad end that ends up happening on this space, right? Because we all know that turnover is really huge in the call center space, generally speaking, right? And obviously you can reduce significant amount of costs when you have people last longer. Every month someone stays longer, those are money savings for you because you're not out there having to recruit, train, and all the onboarding costs, the delay and the time for them to get productive and so on and so forth. Now, obviously technology is huge from the perspective of Everything from collaboration and communication, obviously you're in a remote world, to the things you talked about with engaging people and getting them to be able to get the enjoyment, the collaboration, the communication, that kind of water cooler talk experience. At the same time, is also being able to have that analytical person that really comes in and is able to actually measure how things are going. Do I need to communicate more? Do I need to change how I communicate? And then in the end, obviously, when it comes to technology is obviously not end in value, but just the other piece of it is if the difficulty of that agent to be able to communicate with that customer, vice versa, that customer be able to communicate with that system or agent, that's all friction. And that friction is never going to start off with someone saying, this is a great experience. It's going to always make it more challenging. And then of course you've layered in your techniques, right? All the things, like you said earlier, what you've learned, the processes, and you said it's evolving, it's always changing, which is great because you, I, I would be very, very suspect if anyone says it's something that you just set it and forget it, right? It's a constant thing. So with yep. that said, right, we talked about how you've said talent's important, people are important. We're in the people business, right? You're in a remote world. You said you got to pull a lot of talent, right? But how are you actually attracting and retaining this talent? How are you actually finding them? I know you mentioned millennials. I know you mentioned a large pool of people, but how are you going out and competing against everybody else who now goes, hey, remote or hybrid works. I have access to the same talent pool. What are you doing that's different or helping you maintain that staff that's remote? Yeah, so I think um, I'm, I'm debating on whether I want to give away the secret sauce or not. <laughs> it's not really secret sauce, but so I was fortunate enough. One of the last things I did when I was working at a brick and mortar center um, was we had a, and we had locations all over the country and the recruiting was a challenge, a uh, major challenge. It was, it was failing at the time. And uh, I had never been involved with recruiting other than as an operational guy yelling at the recruiting team because they weren't delivering, right? <laughs> and so um, the owner of the company came to me and said, hey, listen, you know, we've got a major problem over here. The guy we just hired to, to run this in- department walked out after two weeks because it's such a mess. And um, would you be willing to do it? I said, you know, I'm a team player. Let's go. I don't know. I, just, I told him, I was like, I don't know anything about this. Nothing. Zero. So understand you're putting the guy in that I understand operations and I understand how like 
do some stuff with some things, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know any, anything about it. So I, I went in and was able to run that department for the last like year and a half I was there. Uh, and we built something that was very successful. Um, what I learned was, um, that, that recruiting is a lot like, it's a lot like the, I'll, I'll use it kind of the stock market, right? There's times where it's up. There's times where it's down from a, from a people in the, in the recruit, in the, in the recruiting space and, 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 uh, job space. There's times where there's a lot of jobs and not a lot of people, right? And there's times where there's a lot of people and not a lot of jobs and everything in between. So you can't treat the market space the same all the time. You have to understand what space you're in to be able to recruit effectively. The other piece that we discovered was almost all the ATSs, applicant tracking systems out there, um, were not conducive for the type of recruiting that a call center needs to do. Um, we had, I looked at a ton of them and all the traditional ones that are big boys out there. We looked at them and said, this is great, but it's really designed as an HR function um, to bring people on board, but not in mass quantity, not fast, and not with the methodologies that we need to use in our, in our recruiting processes that we'd like as a call center. So when we opened LEC, I'd already learned all that, luckily. It wasn't new to me. It was, uh, okay, so, there, and I say all of that, this goes back to the best practices piece and the techniques piece. Um, we knew that, and I'll, I'll use this example, we knew that recruiting was no longer an HR function. Recruiting was a sales function. And we had to treat it like an outbound sales campaign. Now, you can't use the word sales when you're talking about recruiting, but just in the mental aspect of framing it up, we needed to look at it. And, we, and luckily, we said, hey, like, we're in, we do outbound sales. I've done outbound sales. I've been an outbound salesman my entire life. So is my brother, and so is John, and all these other guys. So we were very familiar with it. How do we take the fundamentals? of that and implement that into a recruiting process, right? That's not reactive, that's proactive and run in such a way that it is able to execute at high levels when turned and ramped up. So that was the first piece for us. We had to put all those things in place and to create that mentality of like, hey, it's not turn a spigot on, have somebody come to a website, fill out an application. The other piece within that was like, how much friction, to your point, how much friction is there? When you're in a market space and, and I'll give you my opinion here. It's based on experience, but it's an opinion. Once they created the, quote, monster of uh, quick applications where people can just do the slot, slot machine application process, uh, it dynamically changed how people are going to have to field applications and recruit. It's, it's like, again, it's like a sales process where you have people doing click leads. So I've got to be able to source those, get through those quickly and contact the ones that match up. And I have to put those processes in place that do that. I've got to train the team in place to understand what we're looking for. Again, that's why we started doing the ideal agent personas of saying, how do we understand who we're looking for so that we can identify them in a, in a sea of applicants? How do we do that? Because we can, marketing's easy. You just turn, turn the thing on and put money on. You're going to get applications. That's the, the gist of it they're not always going to be the applications that are correct for what you need to do. So we had to build all those processes, do the training, put the right recruiters in place, because as we identified, they're not HR people, nothing against HR people, but HR people are built a certain way. The type of recruiter we needed needed to fit more of a salesperson persona. So we had to go and put those type of people in place that are hyper um, self-managed, 
very aggressive and they're going to go out and get things and we reward them in that capacity, much like you would um, as someone who's working off of a, an outbound campaign. So for us, those are big things. In the market space, we understand branding is going to be important. So we've slowly continued to try to build a very positive brand online, um, working on reviews, treating people right. So hopefully we don't get bad reviews. It's not 100% guarantee because again, we all know that if somebody's pissed, they're going to go write a bad review. If they're happy, they're probably not going to go write a review because they're happy. <laughs> so there's some things that we we had learned over the years to do there to help promote the brand and make sure that that voice of the happy employee was being promoted as well, right? And then some of those typical marketing things uh, to put those things out there that are attractive. And then keying in on messaging that is true to who we are, but also registers with the people that we're trying to attract. And we, we embrace the millennial generation. Like I've said all along, like I think this, this will probably piss a lot of people off there is, but I think this is one of the greatest generations that's ever come across. They're very misunderstood, but every generation is. I laugh every time I hear somebody go like, they're entitled, they're, they, you know, they're lazy. Well, I mean, my grandparents said that about my dad, who was a baby boomer. And my dad, who was a baby boomer, said that about me, who's a Gen X. Every generation says that about the next generation because they don't understand them. So the appearance of it is there's something wrong, but there's not. You just got to understand who they are. And if you start viewing them as your customer versus your workforce, you'll start trying to figure out ways to connect with them. And that's how we view any candidate and any employee first is they're our customer. How do we, how do we make sure that our customer satisfaction is very high, right? Because those are going to be the ones out driving customer satisfaction for our other, for our clients. So anyway. I know that was long-winded, but that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. No, there was a lot of really good nuggets there, right? One of them really is, you know, and I don't disagree with you at all on the concept of when you're going out to get talent, it is a lot like sales and the idea that you have to have a specific profile you're looking for, and then you have to know how to attract that talent. You need to know where to find that talent, and then you need to be able to be able to say whether or not you are the right fit for them just as much as they're the right fit for you, right? It's not always one way like, oh, you should be honored to be allowed to apply for my position that's open. It's more of, well, are you both the right fit? Because in the end, that talent is going to translate into outcomes for your end customer, right? Which is the external customer in the outsourcing world. But the other piece of it, when you look at it from the perspective of not only having the right people and the right approach to getting people, but I think you're right when you know, people complain, they're going to tell a bunch of people when they're happy, they only tell a couple. But I think you said something really important earlier in our conversation where you went to that restaurant and that person left such an impression on you. It was so memorable that it was different, not just better. And so you went out to the world and said, hey, I wanted to drag you here, right? So that you can experience this. And so when you take your internal customer with that same experience, that same way of creating those memorable moments for them, then hopefully not only do they stay, but maybe they tell other people and so on and so forth. Um, all great stuff, really good stuff. And obviously I'm gonna be respectful of the time that we got together. So I got a couple of things I wanna cover uh, when we get to the end here. So one of them is, you know, the pandemic hit, right? And, and for a lot of people, super disruptive. A lot of things from going brick and mortar to remote, they weren't ready with processes or the right talent. You, you talked about, man, if you had a crystal ball, there was just all these things that you had. But what things, if any, did you change, implement, or learn as a leader, as a business, 
when you did get to the pandemic that you didn't already have in place uh, that you needed to put in place or do or change as a byproduct of the pandemic already being a remote business? Yeah. So I, it, it did, it did impact us minimal um, from our operational processes because we were already pretty much doing everything that we were doing during that time. Um, I think what we learned, um, in that scenario was, um, the unawareness we had around how that may impact our clients. Um, and so we learned some stuff around that. Uh, I think the bigger piece too was, uh, and this is something we started to look at. So if you had even like, what's the number one thing we learned, um, the point of diminishing return on agent and employee, um, energy and effort and demand. Um, because the stress levels and we, nobody could anticipate what the stress of the pandemic was going to do to everybody. Right. And I mean, we've seen it afterwards, what it's done with people with mental health, what it's done with people with, you know, fear of going anywhere. Like there's a lot of stuff, right? Rightly so. Um, we learned a lot about how do we keep people in that sweet spot of working? Um, we went from a model where everybody was 40 hours a week full-time, here's your schedule. Um, we had flex some flexible scheduling. We tried to be friendly with it and you could choose this and blah, 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 that. But what we realized was like, okay, we got to take into account external stress, the stress of what they're actually engaging with on the job, right? Because um, some of our clients are telemedicine, right? I mean, the stress of that job went through the roof during the pandemic, right? So how do we account for some of that to make sure that we keep our employees in a healthy workspace to ensure that they're not burning out and breaking? Because, um, you know, again, pressure break, breaks pipes and there's pipes are, are made to hold pressure, but you need to understand what the max pressure is and keep it underneath that so that you don't break it. And we need to keep, so that's, anyway, that was a big one for us is how do we start measuring that and going back to how do we create training that made people feel more secure in their role, because one of the biggest challenges in a role is I'm, I'm, I've got a level of fear and insecurity because I'm not exactly sure what to do. Uh, how do we bring onboarding and make that feel better, right? In that way to feeling like I'm, I'm hyper-connected. I understand my role. I know what I'm supposed to do, at least to a, a competency level where I don't feel like I've been thrown into the deep end of the ocean during a storm. Um, you know, and, and and how do we monitor that and look at that? So we kind of keep our eye on that. We, you know, said, I think it's really helped. We've, we've seen our attrition, uh, or I should say our retention, continue to go up um, and, and since that time. And so, you know, but we've changed some scheduling. Like some people on some projects, we don't do 40-hour-a-week scheduling. We do more like 30, 32, uh, 35. Don't get me wrong, there may be some people that are on there 40 because they've requested it and we've determined they can handle it. Um, but we try to keep them in that range and we look at breaks and other things that we put in there and say, okay, we've got to be a little more strategic about this. So that was the biggest nugget from us or for I us. Love, I love that part where you talk about how you really have to know what they can handle because it's not the same as what it was before, right? The pandemic had a lot of stressors, right? several people in the same household sharing the same internet may not even have a room that's conducive to yeah. doing, you know, this work, you know, there's the stress of, you know, getting sick and going outside. You mentioned all these pieces and we've talked about it now for some time, but you sat back and said, how do I measure that? How do I anticipate that? How do I know that because it's probably going to happen, 
how can I go in there and make some changes to how we communicate, how we train, how we onboard? Uh, how do we know when someone's getting to their limit? And really, again, it, it goes back to the testament and your leadership and John and everybody else who's been involved in people first, right? If your people um, are there longer, they're happier, they understand what's expected of them, they're held accountable through good communication and standards, then obviously that accountability allows them to have comfort and knowing what they're doing, right? They're not the agent they can turn around and tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, let me see what you're doing. Let me hear what you're doing. Let me kind of have a conversation. Uh, really, it's just these individual silos that you're trying to break down. So with that said, I want to just talk about one last item before you get to some personal stuff is more around when you go remote. And we heard a lot about it during the pandemic as there was concerns around security, being compliant, data protection, uh, staying in the, the realm of compliance for regulatory uh, outcomes. How did you, when you went down that path, did you run into scenarios where people were like, man, people are remote, they're at home. What about my data? How does this stay secure? Um, yeah. Talk to us about what you went through when, if you went through those types of discussions and how you handled them. Yeah. So yes, we did. Um, and I, I anticipated that being a question. I always go, I, I always kind of, I don't want to throw too much salt on the brick and mortar game, but I always went back to, you know, people like, how do you manage and how do you do this? And I was like, okay, I'm an insider. Let's be honest. None of the, most of this stuff is not being done the way it's presented anyway. And, and most of it's not working. Okay. It works from a compliance standpoint when you get a stamp from a SOC certificate that you've put in place for a week or two before you change everything back um, and things like that. Like that's what these, most of these companies do. Um, and I'm not pointing fingers There's some that do really well and they're by the book and they're great businesses. So I'm not lumping the whole industry, but there, let's not pretend it was working. I, I, I think that's my first conversation with people. Um, for us, it was about saying, okay, what are, what are the needs by project? Because because we're remote and because we're not on-prem, we can actually fractionalize parts of our business and say, okay, this project needs this security, this type of interface, this type of connectivity. Uh, and we build that into the financial model. We build it into the build-out model and we build that in with our technologies built. So we first evaluate. We're a huge discovery group. Like we, we want to understand your business and your business's requirements and needs. And then what we do in our job is, is to build out a framework that protects your brand on the front end. And that's part of brand protection, part of brand slaughter too. There's decisions that people make that they unknowingly expose their customer bases. That would be an example, right? So we want to make sure that we understand your business from a technology standpoint and work with your IT team to meet whatever guidelines need to be met to keep those things secure. So we, we went out and, and brought in what we feel like is a pretty decent IT team that continues to grow. And I shouldn't say decent. They're great guys and girls. Um, they're fantastic. Um, but we, we wanted that to be a strong part of us. We knew that was going to be a massive piece of our business. So we wanted to find some people. We've got Glenn on the team and, and a few other people like JoJo that like we really feel strongly are, are really, really great at what they do. But again, it goes back to just that customization around each project and what needs to be done. And there were some that after we looked at what needs to be done and they looked at it and the pricing that would have to go into place and maybe even development or something like that. So sometimes, and it's only happened once or probably two times in five years, we had to say, this is not, this doesn't make sense. Both of us, like we looked at it and said, this doesn't make sense. We have to price this. Takes us out of the competitive market space you're even evaluating us for, right? And even though we feel like we do a better job than anybody else, at the end of the day, it still comes down to dollars and cents. 
right? Like you've got to be able to put it into a bucket that makes financial sense to your client. So for us, that was the big piece, just making sure that we understand and are dialed in on. And that was another reason we looked at Noble Biz when we said, okay, for outbound campaigns, a lot of compliancy things that are changing all the time. We can't keep up with all that. We keep up with what we can. We need a partner that helps us keep up with it, right? Um, so for that piece, that was another you know, chunk there that really helped us acquire some clients and it still continues to because we can go in and say, well, we've already got X, Y, and Z covered, right? From a technology protection and data protection standpoint, a compliant standpoint. So anyway, I, I, I know that's not really granular, but it, it really is different by client. I'll tell you, we've got, we have financial clients. We have telemedicine clients. You're dealing with HIPAA. Um, or we have insurance clients, you know? So, I mean, there's a good like gamut stuff that we've got to be compliant with um, from a data security and, and access security um, standpoint. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a big chunk of what we have to continually work on and evolve. Yeah, I think the big takeaway is it's not one size fits all. It's no. being able to know your customer and then be able to have a conversation with them so that they feel comfortable that you're not a risk to their business, right? And yep. as long as you come in with the right people, you hire the right people, they understand the space, they come in and take those best practices like you've talked about earlier, share them and say, how do we collaborate together to get you that endpoint, which is comfort that I'm not a risk to your business when it comes to these things. All right, so yep. we've run out of time, but I gotta just ask one thing. I know you're super busy, but with that said, what do you do outside of work? I mean, what do you have that you're passionate about? As I know you got a busy schedule, but what are you doing to kind of decompress, disconnect, or do whatever it is that yeah. you love? So I, I, I start every day with journaling and reading something spiritual and, and productive for myself. I got out of that early on. It was detrimental to my ability to execute and be happy. Um, so that's first and foremost. If I'm no good, if I'm not good personally, I'm no good for anybody else. Business, my kids, anything else. Um, outside that, it's um, 99% children and my wife. Um, I have four kids. Uh, as I mentioned, I've one of them that's working for me. So I, I steal time, uh, there, you know, to get with her cause she's in college in a way, but, um, and I have three littles. So it's baseball, soccer, volleyball. Um, I, I exercise. Uh, so I try to keep a good regimen there. I'm an old gym rat. So I loved, I just like to work out. Um, and then, and then, um, last, my one last, I don't drink. My last vice is, um, I've gotten into cigars. And so I like to sit on the patio or to go down to the cigar bar and have a good cigar and, and talk with people or just sit by myself and listen to the birds chirp. And so the, <laughs> those things for me are, are the big things that keep me aligned, you know, family, faith, and friends, you know. Well, I'll tell you right now, whenever one does, right, finding what those things are and having a balance and having a place and time where they get to participate in your life where it's not just work, yeah. I think it's critically important for all of us who obviously don't take that time during the day, at the end of the day, or any other time that you got that time to really have to yourself, to your family, to others. And I think you're, you're spot on a lot of that. Now, look, I love our conversation. I know we could talk forever. There's so many good things I'm sure we'll be able to talk about in the future. But look, there's going to be people that said, Eric, I love you. I want to connect with you. Hey, uh, your business is awesome. I want to know more about it. How can people connect with you, connect with your business? They want to continue a conversation with you. Sure. They can, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's just, you know, Eric, E-R-I-C, Sims, S-I-M-S, and it's under, you know, Leading Edge Connections. You'll see me as the CEO of that. 
of Preventing Brand Slaughter. You can find me on the Preventing Brand Slaughter broad, uh, uh, podcast, which is on pretty much every platform out there and then on YouTube. Um, and then you can you can email me directly. I don't mind. I, I welcome conversations. So my email is eric, E-R-I-C, at L-E-C, the number four, Y-O-U.com, select for you.com. Um, so those are the main and the easiest ways. You can go to our website, too, if you want to fill out a contact form, then myself or one of our other guys will reach out to you. Awesome. Well, look, if you haven't checked out Preventing Brand Slaughter, you have to. Uh, it's just another place where you're going to get some valuable information and obviously a great conversation that you'll be able to get the outcomes from. So look, that's today's podcast. Super excited for those who are going to be able to listen to it. And look, if you really haven't subscribed yet, please do leave us a review. Tell us uh, any information, feedback, maybe guests that you can have uh, have us on. So, but until next time, thanks for joining First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Eric, great talking to you, bud. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in this episode. If you're loving the content, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your YouTube channel for exclusive clips, webinars, workshops, and bonus materials. And if you're an Apple iTunes listener, we greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review to help spread the word. On our YouTube page, you can also leave us feedback, comments, and suggest future guests that you'd like to hear from. For even more valuable insights and information on the call center world, visit NobelBiz.com and access our on-demand webinars. I'm Christian Montez, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of First Contact Podcast. Stay with us for the next exciting chapter.